I'll come up with a uh, an old saying that I've heard somewhere down the road, and I think it fits a particular situation. And then uh, after I've quoted this old saying, Cheryl is usually fairly careful to tell me, he says, Dad, you're the only person in the world that knows that. That I have never heard that before. I've never heard anybody say that before. Nobody knows that but you. And I don't really think that's true. It might be, but I don't think so. And I say that because there's an old saying that became an old saying, I think because, like most of them, it's very, very true. And that saying is, familiarity breeds contempt. Now, what they're trying to say is that if you see something all the time, if you do something all the time, eventually it gets to the point where you can just go through it and never really pay any thought to it at all. Have you ever done that when you've driven the same road over and over and over again and you're thinking about something, something important has happened or is going to happen, and you're driving down that road and you're thinking about that and all, you, all of a sudden you find yourself at your destination, it's, wow, how did I get here? You don't remember anything about the trip? You're on autopilot, you're just going through the motions and you're not really giving it any thought. And that can be a bad thing when it comes to worship. And I think that that is why you have some denominational groups that will tell you, if you ask them why they don't partake of the Lord's Supper every first day of the week, as the Bible tells us to, and they'll say, well, we only do it once a year. We do it twice a year. And you say, well, why? And they say, because it means more to us if we do that. If we took it every week, then we wouldn't think that much about it. It wouldn't mean as much. Well, the fact that they think it's going to mean more is not justification for doing something other than what God said do. But at the same time, we do need to realize that when we do something in worship over and over and over again, there is always the tendency to stop thinking about what you're doing. You're just going through the motions, you're on automatic pilot, you're doing these things, but you're not really thinking about them. You're not giving them the attention that they're due. And I think that's especially uh, a problem when it comes to worshiping God in song. Most religious groups out there, most of the denominational world, really views worship in song as a form of entertainment. That's why they have choirs, and that's why they have bands, and special music, and things like that. They consider themselves to be the audience. The people who are doing the playing and singing are the performers, and they are there to be entertained. And that is not what it's about. When we come as a congregation of God's people, or even when we're worshiping by ourselves somewhere, and there are some acts of worship that we can perform as individuals. We can pray, we can read God's word, we can even sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. But what we need to realize is God is the audience. He's the one that we're doing this for. We're doing it in accord with his stated commands. He said do it and we're doing it. But sometimes, I don't think we pay enough attention to the songs that we sing. And think about it this way. 
most of the time, if somebody's talking about uh, uh, mechanical instruments of music and worship, you know, we go to Ephesians 5:19 and we say, "See, it says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs." Go to uh, Colossians 3:16. Says we are teaching and admonishing one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And we say, "See, uh, it's something that we do without the accompaniment of a mechanical instrument of music. It, it is vocal singing, and that's all that God has authorized." But think about that. We are speaking to ourselves. When we sing in worship, you are speaking to me and I'm speaking to you. When we are worshiping God in song, we are also teaching and admonishing one another. Now, if we're going to teach and admonish one another in the songs that we sing, just like in anything else, whether you're talking about a preacher or a Bible class teacher, you want to make sure that what is being taught is biblically sound. It needs to be something that's doctrinally correct. You need to pay attention to the words. What are you singing about? I really appreciate Gary uh, leading that last song, Jesus Loves Me, because that's the one I wanted to use as an example uh, of exactly what I'm talking about. You know, Jesus loves me, this I know. How do we know that? For the Bible tells me so. Now, that's one of those things Paul said that there are certain things we can know about God just from looking at the creation around us. In Acts chapter 14, verse 17, he talked about the fact that God did not leave himself without witness. Even in the Gentile world, God did things for people that should have prompted them to look for him. He gave them rain. He gave them fruitful seasons. These are a witness to God's power and, and his benevolence. But also over in Romans chapter 1, in verse 20, he says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. I've had people ask me from time to time, people like to think that they've come up with an unanswerable question. And sometimes they do, but that's only because the person they're asking the question of doesn't have the knowledge base to answer them. In this particular case, people have sometimes said, well, what about people who have never heard about God. They have never heard about Jesus. They don't know anything about him at all. Paul says they're still without excuse. They can look at, the, at nature around them and they can draw the conclusion that there is a supreme being out there somewhere. There is someone who made all of this. And then the next uh, question that should occur to them is, what does he want from me? And if you sincerely, honestly, want to know what God wants you to do, God will give you the opportunity to find it out. Not miraculously, but through his providence, he'll make sure that you have an opportunity to learn the things you need to know. You know, Acts chapter 8, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You had a good, sincere, honest man who only knew about the law of Moses. God gave him an opportunity to learn what he needed to know. 
He brought him and the preacher together. So God will do the same thing for us if we sincerely, honestly want to know what he wants us to do. And again, I'm not talking about miraculous things. He's not going to miraculously give us the knowledge that some people say he does. But he will, through his providence, give us the opportunity to know what we need to know. But there are things, uh, as we look at the world around us, that can tell us something about God. And that that is one of those things. I'm oftentimes really bewildered uh, at the thought processes of of people. Uh, And, I mean, really and truly, I don't understand how they think the way they do, and I hope I never do understand why they think the way they do. I don't understand why they don't think right, but they don't. Uh, I, I heard a, uh, a scientist on a, uh, a website not too long ago, and somebody had asked him the question. They said, if, if you could tell creationists one thing that would prove to them that God doesn't exist, what would you tell them? And he started going through some things about genetics and this and that and the other, and I was thinking the whole time, everything you've said is evidence for God, not against him. You know, where is your train of thought coming from and where is it going to? But we can look at at nature around us, and we should, and we can see how complex it is, but how perfectly ordered it is. How everything has a niche and everything fits into its niche. Things work extremely well. There are are things that man, with with all of of the time that they have put into trying to understand it, they don't understand it yet. There are things that that science has tried to duplicate, things that they see in nature and they can't do it. And when, when a person looks at these things, the thought that ought to occur to them is, you know, how, how wonderful God is. Look at the things that he's done. So we can know a lot about God from observing nature around us. As Paul says about his eternal power and Godhead. But we can't know about the love of God for us without revelation. We can know God exists from creation In order to know about the love that he has for us, we have to go to revelation. We have to go to his revealed word. And that will tell us how much God loves us. And that's that's one of those things, you know, again, I think sometimes we we don't pay as much attention to it as we ought to. Uh, We've become too familiar with it. We don't think about it enough. But uh, if you look at John 3, 16, one of the first verses every child that's ever gone to a Bible class is going to learn. Just like, you know, Jesus loves me is one of the first songs they're ever going to learn. That's one of those things. I, I, you know, we look at that a lot of the time like it's a children's song. And I, I guess it's because it's, it's relatively simple. The melody and the words are not all of that complicated. And children do learn it. And we think that's a children's song, but it's, it's really for everybody. You know, we all ought to look at what it says and be grateful for the love that God has for us. But in John 3.16, it is not the fact of God's love that is under consideration here. That is assumed. Jesus assumes that people know 
that God loves us all. What he's talking about is he's talking about the magnitude of God's love. And that's why he says, for God so loved the world. This is how much God loved us. He loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's how much God loved us. He gave his son. Now, a, a lot of people like to stop there and, and say, well, God loves us, so he doesn't expect anything from us. I've oftentimes thought of it like people really don't want a father in heaven. They want a grandfather in heaven. You know, grandfathers are the one who gives gifts and don't really expect anything in return a lot of the time. Fathers, on the other hand, you know, they're the disciplinarians. I don't know how many times I heard, wait till your father gets home. And it never ended well. But people don't want that. They want somebody that loves them unconditionally, expects nothing from them, and gives gifts, and doesn't expect anything really in return. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It didn't need to be condemned. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. We stood condemned already. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. One of my biggest pet peeves in the whole wide world, and I have a bunch of them. One of my biggest ones is when you see on commercials somebody saying, get the this, that, or the other you deserve. If it's money or a fancy car or a better house or who knows what, you know, you need to get this because you deserve it. Oh, no, you don't. What you get that you deserve is something that you are owed. You worked for it. That's why you deserve it. And that's why we deserve death. Because we sinned. We came short of the glory of God. We fell short of what God expected of us. And that's why God sent his son. He loved us that much. You know, we have to, to bear in mind that the love of God is not unconditional. He loves everybody. But I guess the better way to say it is his love is unconditional, but salvation is not. It'd be more accurate because there are things God requires of us. It's, you know, the, uh, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You know, we've earned death, God offers us a gift. But you can't have the gift if you don't receive it. And, and that's where a lot of people who think that, that submitting to baptism in order to have our sins washed away is a work of man and is thus not necessary for salvation. It is, it is not a work of man. It's a work of obedience. We're doing what we were told to do. So, uh, you know, to think of, of, of baptism as in some way earning our salvation, uh, how somebody comes up with that idea, I don't know. Because it's not. We have to receive the gift, and obedience to the gospel is how we do it. Uh, the best example I've ever seen 
one that I've used myself quite often, is if, if I had a $100 bill, and I've been married to a banker for over 40 years, so you can just hang it up, I don't have one. But if I did, and if I were to offer it to somebody, and I were to say, come up here and get this, you have done nothing to earn it, you don't deserve it, but I wanna offer it to you anyway. If you sit there in the pew and you never come up to get it, you didn't receive it, did you? Same thing with salvation. God offers it to us, but we have to accept it. And that's what the gift of God is. Salvation that is offered to us, something that we can accept if we so choose. But when we, when we think about the love of God, you know, you, you think about the depth of it. it. It's one of those things, have you ever done something for somebody and they have shown by their actions that they didn't appreciate it at all. Uh, there was a friend of mine back some time ago. Uh, he was telling me that uh, he had made the acquaintance of somebody in the congregation where he was attending at the time. Uh, and the guy had said something about not having a Bible, that he would like to have a nice Bible. Well, this is the kind of guy, he would spend a lot of money on a Bible. He would get the best one he could get. Well, he had one, he had used it for a while. Uh, it was showing a little bit of wear, but not much. And he decided, well, I'm gonna give this Bible that I've had, that I put notes in, I'm gonna give it to him and I'll go get another one. And so he gave the guy the Bible and the guy said, thank you very much, I really appreciate it, I wanted a Bible. And he said a few weeks later, he happened to be walking through the parking lot and there was the Bible splayed open in the back window of the guy's car and you could tell that it had been there for some time. It was just sitting there getting bleached out by the sun and ruined. And he said that really hurt his feelings. He had done something for someone that he thought was a really good thing. It, it was something that was a sacrifice to him and it was not appreciated at all. And when you think about doing something for someone and it not being appreciated, put yourself in God's position. Over in Romans chapter five, in verse six, Paul said, for when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were still sinners. We were ungodly. And Christ died for us anyway. Would you sacrifice something that was really precious to you for people that were not gonna appreciate it? And you knew ahead of time that they weren't gonna appreciate it? The sinless son of God died on a cross so that we could escape the penalty of our sins and the vast majority of people are gonna say, no thanks, don't care, don't want it. It's wasted. For most people, that sacrifice is wasted. 
I mean, if that doesn't hurt your feelings on his behalf, it should to have something that remarkable offered to you. And then you just say, no, thanks. Don't care. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He says in verse 7, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. There are people who will put their lives on the line for other people. And you, you see this all the time where, where someone is trying to save someone in a, in a burning house, uh, or they're trying to save someone who's drowning, uh, and perhaps one of the people that's trying to save them dies in the attempt. But, but that is generally looked at as something that is over and above what most people will do. And you wouldn't do that for somebody that you knew was a bad person. You say, why should I? But Christ did. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you think about the sacrifice and what that should mean to us. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And it's only through God's revelation that we will know the depth of love that he has for us. Jesus loves me, he who died. Heaven's gates to open wide. You know, there are some, I mentioned already that there are some things that, that people say uh, that they claim to believe, and I don't get it. I don't understand it at all. And again, I hope I never do. But it is, it is evidently uh, a thing with some people to say that, that Jesus did not come to earth in order to die on the cross. I, I read an article in the newspaper uh, by a guy that's been back some time ago. I know better than to read the paper now. But uh, that's essentially what he said. Christ did not come to earth to die on the cross. And I was thinking, what? Where did that come from? But in, in his mind, and this is, this is a fairly popular doctrine evidently, but in his mind, Jesus came to earth to set up his kingdom on earth. But the Jews rejected him. That caught God by surprise. So he decided, well, what I'll do is I'll set the church up temporarily, and when the Jews are ready to accept Jesus as their king, then I'll send him back. And then I think, well, then if that were the case, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? I mean, well, why would that have been necessary? You know, think about it this way. If, if, if God sent Jesus to this earth just to set up his kingdom, and because he wasn't able to do it when he wanted to, he allowed Jesus to be tortured the way he was, to be humiliated the way he was, and to die that death on the cross that he died. If God allowed all of that when it was not necessary, would you want to follow that God? I wouldn't. If he's going to allow somebody to undergo all of that for no reason. You know, anybody who says that Jesus didn't come to earth to die on the cross doesn't know very much about the Bible. Because it, if, when you go back into the Old Testament, you read the prophecies, you know, it, it was evident that this is what God had in mind from the beginning. A sacrifice had to be made. Somebody had to pay the price. 
And Jesus was the one who did. You know, I was talking this morning a little bit about, you know, you can't understand the book of Hebrews unless you understand something about the Old Testament. Well, the Hebrew writer uh, talks about these things quite a bit uh, all through the, the book, uh, pretty much. But he's talking about the priesthood over in uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. He's talking about the uh, sacrifices that were made at the physical tabernacle or later the temple and the duties of the high priest in offering the sacrifices. And he's drawing a parallel between what was done then and what Jesus did later. And like I said, you can't understand the book of Hebrews without knowing something about, about the Old Testament because he gets into this a lot. But he goes on, verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most, high, or the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. It, he had to enter with blood as a sacrifice. That's what the high priest did under the law of Moses. That's what Jesus did for us. He entered the spiritual most holy place with the blood of a sacrifice, his own. Things could not be remitted. Sins could not be remitted without sin or without blood. Verse 22, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Under the law of Moses, sins were, we usually like to say they were, they were just pushed forward with the blood of, of bulls and goats until the atoning blood of, of Jesus was shed, which could wipe the sins away. But he said it was necessary. It's necessary that Jesus was offered as a sacrifice. It is appointed for men once to die, verse 27, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So he's done his part. He did something that God knew he was going to do from the very beginning. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sins was always part of God's plan. So when you, when you think about that song and you think about Jesus loves me, he who died, heaven's gates to open wide, that's what it took. It took the, the blood of a sacrifice that didn't have to atone for any of its own sins. It took Jesus' blood 
to open the gates of heaven to us. You know, everybody likes to think about the fact that God is love, and that is absolutely true. The problem is, is they forget that that's not the only characteristic of God. God is love, but God is also perfect justice. God cannot tolerate sin. Sin has to be paid for. Jesus offered to pay for it. But Jesus loves me, he who died, heaven's gates to open wide. Jesus, take this heart of mine, make it pure and holy thine. Thou hast bled and died for me. I will henceforth live for thee. You know, when you think about what he did, you know, what other kind of, uh, uh, of reaction could you have? You know, he did this for us. He offered us the opportunity to escape the penalty of our sins. He suffered and died for us. Why would we not want to live for him? That's what he's asking here. Thou hast bled and died for me. I will henceforth live for thee. Over in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Present your body as a living sacrifice. A sacrifice was something that was given to God. It was his. And that's what we're supposed to do. Jesus died for us, so we live for him. We belong to him completely. We do what he wants us to do. We don't do the things he doesn't want us to do. We live for him completely. Take this heart of mine and make it pure. Do away with the worldly thoughts. Be the, the, the kind of person that we ought to be. Be the, the spiritually minded person. You know, change your mind. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You know, sometimes people think that God's being unreasonable about some of the things he, he requires of us. They say, well, why in the world would he tell us to do that? God doesn't tell us to do anything that's impossible. He doesn't tell us to do anything that's bad for us. He doesn't tell us to do anything that we shouldn't do anyway. And in this particular case, remember that we belong to him. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't be conformed, be transformed. So if you look at the words of the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's only in the pages of God's revealed word that we find out just how great God's love for us is. Jesus loves me, he who died. Heaven's gates to open wide. Without the redeeming sacrifice of Jesus, we would have no hope of eternal life. None at all. Jesus, take this heart of mine, make it pure and holy thine. Thou hast bled and died for me. I will henceforth live for thee. Sing those words and mean it. You know, we need to pay attention to the words of the songs that we sing because there are some great lessons there. And this one especially, I think, 
As I mentioned, oftentimes we think about it as a, a child's song, but it's not really. It applies to all of us, adults, children, whichever. It may be that there's someone here this evening that needs to respond to the Lord's invitation. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you've not accepted that gift that God offers us, then you have the opportunity to come forward confessing your faith in Jesus as the Son of God so that you can be baptized to have your sins washed away. If you're an erring child of God, then you need to go to God in prayer, confess your sin to him from a repentant heart, and ask him to forgive you. And he's promised to do that. If your sin is public in nature, then your repentance should be public as well, so that you'll not bring shame and reproach upon the church. Or it might be that someone just needs to come forward and ask for the prayers of those saints that are gathered here. Whatever your need is, would you come forward and make it known while together we stand and sing. <laughs> 